All right. Welcome to uh, Working Title Sports Podcast here. Again, I was thinking championship or bust, but we're not sure what the boys and I will go with. So, yeah. Um, I'm Zach, and I'm joined here by my friends Josh. Hello. And Mac. How are we doing? Great, brothers. Um, so, yeah. So, just a brief intro. Here's how I at least came up with this idea. I literally went to go search Apple Podcasts and listen to a sports uh, baseball history specific podcast, and there were none. And I said, oh, uh, that's annoying. Maybe I should make one. So here we are. Um, this is our attempt. We are planning to do, I believe, all the World Series in order. Um, but obviously, we're not going to limit ourselves to that. So we'll be talking about baseball. Um, eventually, Josh and I are really good. Good. We, <laughs> we like hockey. Um, it's a big basketball Bro. dude. So we'll be talking about all sports, but mainly baseball-centric here. Um, yeah. Anything else, boys? Pretty much covers it. I think you got it covered. All right. Well, let's see. First current events. We also figured talk about some current events to keep it a little bit relevant so, you know, we're not bored. Um, so I was thinking favorite big signings of the offseason. I'll go first. I um, I chose, what's his name? Um, Bogarts to the Padres. I really think that strengthens our lineup out there. Obviously, they already have Soto and Manny. And Cronenworth's really, really good low-key. Um, oh, what's his name? Josh Bell left though, right? Yeah, he's gone. Yeah, that sucks for them. But uh, Xander is very underrated, I think, and his fielding has gotten better and better with each year. I know he used to be pretty bad at fielding, but I I think he's really good now. I mean, that's a great sign. You know, he's always been very underrated. Josh Bell to the Guardians, as you pointed out, not exactly one of the biggest signings, but that definitely will be uh, very helpful for them because they needed some power in their lineup. And mm-hmm. I think that that's actually like, it's not my favorite signing of the year. So that's not what I'm getting to. But since you brought it up, I just figured I'd kind of comment on that one. No, you're good. Uh, yeah. Man, I, I always liked Bell. He was always an underrated player, mm-hmm. I think. Switch header that hits for power, plays a decent field. And they got him for pretty no, cheap, good. too. I would have I loved him on my team. They did. Padres lineup takes a hit from that. But I mean, Bogarts is great. He's a, I don't know, the shortstop market is. What were you going to say, Josh, about Tatis? All right. So Tatis is atrocious in the field. Oh, that's right. And now you can just hide him in left yeah. field. I mean, he's got a great arm, and his fielding is horrific. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that's going to be the question with them is Tatis, actually, with the idea of how is he going to be after the drug suspension? How is he going to be after the surgeries? You know, mm. there's definitely a lot of moving parts there. But if he pl- comes back and plays well, they're definitely, you know, one of the teams to beat in the NL. Oh, yeah. I mean, unless they don't choke to the Phillies again. And, uh, uh, between them and the Dodgers. And, uh, <laughs> It's a tough division. It's always a tough division out there, though. Yeah, the Giants thought they signed oh. so many people, and they got yeah, nothing. big rip to all the Giant fans out there. My God. <laughs> well, I mean, they signed Arson Judge. <laughs> that was pretty big. The That's wrong what I was judge. Was my favorite signing of the year it was Mr. Carlos Correa, just for the drama and the. Uh, uh, oh God. That baseball relevant for a while. Like, obviously, as a Yankee fan, Aaron Judge is my favorite signing for obvious reasons. We needed him desperately, but when it comes to Carlos Correa. Just the idea of him starting with the Giants and then going to the Mets for, you know, just the contract going from very high to dropping significantly just couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And I'm very happy to see that. I think it's hilarious that San Francisco signs him to this huge ass deal. And then they suddenly decide, oh, you know, the doctor says your ankles, you know, destroyed and you're not going to hold up for 12 years, whatever it was they signed him for. And then the Mets, you know, swoop in at the midnight hour, and it's like, oh, my God, Steve Cohen, he did. He's the greatest thing ever. And then they find out the Mets went to the exact same doctor yeah, San Francisco how, dude, went what to. What is their reasoning with that? the same thing how, that his ankle was busted. How did they do that? I will say, though, that if Steve Cohen didn't want to shell out money, there's no way his leg is okay. Cohen would have paid him. It's more that the, you know. I mean, Minnesota knew. physical. Minnesota knew, right? Already, because they signed him last year. Yeah, right. So they know what they, they should you know, know what they're going to get into, at least, I would hope. But it, it might be for them more a case of, you know, who else are we going to get? That desperation may not have been there for the Giants because they didn't already have him there. But for the Twins, it's the idea of losing this great player in their lineup. This, I hate to use sabermetrics, but this high war player in their lineup. And, you know, I guess kind of it's easier to swallow not getting someone you thought you were going to get as opposed to losing, you know, such a key on your team. 
I don't know. Did you see the way that contract is structured, though? He had opt-outs after every year. Like, they got to know he was going to leave, or at least try to. Right, but he got good, and, um, he got good annual value, at least, as opposed to the giant contract. But he wanted the years, and I think there's a reason why he wanted the years. Yeah. So. All right, Josh, you're up. Oh, boy. I mean, you know, speaking of Steve Cohen again, man, he spares no expense and goes out and gets Verlander. You know, you lose to Grom, obviously. You got to do something to replace him, and, and, you know, you'll get the Cy Young winner, you know, your AL Cy Young winner. For 43, or is it 46 now? Million. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody knows he's old, and everybody knows, you know, he may or may not be a cheater. <laughs> but... uh I mean that's that's the best thing that you can buy with with money at, at this point. You're talking two year contract, eighty six point seven million, and a thirty five million vesting for twenty twenty five. Bring back the Tiger teammates, the two Hall of Famer duo, and you know all of a sudden this this off season that could have been disastrous for the Mets. You you keep Diaz, you keep Nimmo, and you get Verlander and you get Kodai Senga. All of a sudden, like what should have been a loss turned into probably a net even or maybe a slight loss. Definitely a lot of damage control. Yeah, I mean, and let's be real, as great as the ground is, man, he can't stay on the field. No, not at all. Um, do we know why pitchers get paid so much more than position players, though? I really don't get it at all. I mean, it might just be something as simple as, you know, supply and demand. You know, man, pitchers... Uh... Here's when you regular season games, pitchers when you play I guess so. After watching Luis Castillo for the Mariners at the very end of the year, and I haven't gotten to watch a whole lot of his stuff, but the games that I watch, he is so dominant when he decides to play well. And that was when it was like, okay, maybe the Yankees should have gave up more for him trying to get him than you know maybe they originally offered. That really could have had some value. Uh, we've seen for the last couple of years, like our teams have not had the best pitching. We finally got Rodon now and it's starting to look a little bit better, but um, like you definitely see the value there, but there've been plenty of teams that have had like the five man rotations of, you know, legend after legend who wound up falling short. So it's never an exact science either. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Rodon, man, but I don't think that's that's going to tip the Yankees in the direction one way or another. You know, they got lucky out of what Nestor Cortez has magically turned into, and God knows if he's going to be able to repeat that. And if you can keep Severino healthy, you have your four-headed monster. I'm sorry, Zach. No, yeah, but, and there's another guy that can't stand I know. If DJ actually gets a full year in, I really think it'll make a difference, but we'll see. Um, yeah, so Josh's was a Verlander, and from there... Um, given to i guess the main segments we will talk about the 1903 world series first world series uh boston americans versus pittsburgh um my task was the state of the league so in the 1860s 1850s baseball was such like a wild wild west um and i wasn't trying to there's a bunch of like small leagues that lasted for years and they're they're mainly on the regional scene so the one that i just picked up was just the national league it was created in 1876 replaces the nabpa national association of professional base players uh, um it's basically unregulated dude there's no there's no like scheduling um the members of the cities you can just drop in and out at any points um but the main thing was also Boston just dominated the league. and There was like no good competition for them. So they wanted to bring in more teams who would be competitive and have a stable schedule and be willing to commit to it because teams didn't want to go on the road if it was too expensive. If they were making profit, they would just refuse. So the National League like started making teams commit to playing baseball. <laughs> um, NL operated with around 12 teams for eight years until they cut back to eight teams um, in 1900, which created room for competition, which brings in uh, the American League, um, created by Ben Johnson in 1901, takes a market share away from the National League. A guy, Ben Johnson, signed a bunch of like stars to the American League to try and, um, what's it called, garner, I guess, star power, duh. Um, so he totally poached some really good players. 
stolen over. That's genius. Cy Young, dude. Yeah, that guy's pretty damn good. Cy Young and uh, Jimmy Collins. Uh, and eventually he signed over 50 National League players, which, like, is nuts. I don't know. I mean, Mike, do you have any insight? I don't know how, like, the NFL started or anything like that, but I think that's Yeah, I was great. about to say, actually, it kind of has some parallels to, like, just in general with the leagues. At first, when the leagues start, there's not a lot of teams, and there's usually, like, one or two that just completely dominate. Yeah, we saw that with, um, I guess, the Minneapolis Lakers with George Mikan um, in basketball. And in football, you really had just, like, your basic teams that we still see now. Like, you know, Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers, even the Cleveland Browns at the time with Jim Brown and Paul Brown. And then you have, uh, obviously, the New York Giants. There were a lot of big teams that are still around today that really set that tone. But I guess in basketball, the Minneapolis Lakers was, like, really that beginning. And when the NBA formed and obviously took shape and then they started to integrate, the Boston Celtics really took over. And then Bill Russell won the 11 championships with you know, Red Auerbach and Bob Cousy and later John Havlicek. And that always uh, came around. So I guess it kind of does have some parallels because at first you're going to have your owners who are willing to spend and le- less teams, less talent level, lower competition. And that's going to mean that, you know, the balance of powers is going to be way out of whack. Yeah, imagine just refusing to play baseball because you can't afford it. Pretty much. But just looking here, like George Mikan, for example, five-time BAA champion, which is the league before the NBA. So BAA then became the NBA, and then two-time NBL champion prior to that. So wow. as the league was starting to form, it kind of worked the same way. But I remember reading quite a bit about Ben Johnson and like through, you know, when I was doing the Hall of Fame plaque research and I didn't expect him to come up tonight, but I just remember like just how long he, his tenure was the 27 years and then he resigned because of his health and, you know, just obviously like, you know, picked up a lot of big names along the way. So big part of the formation of Major League Baseball. Yeah. Uh and obviously, from poaching all those players, how do how do you think the National League felt about um, playing them? <laughs> oh yeah, that's a whole other story. But it's sort of like now with baseball with no salary caps, you don't want to pay. Who cares? <laughs> uh, yeah. So it took them a whole year to um, come to a truce. The league's finally called a truce in uh, 1903, and then they formed what's called the National Commission to provide to preside over organized baseball. So that's when. Obviously, in 1903, World Series came into play. But just a big footnote, that was an agreement between the teams itself, the Boston Americans and the Pittsburgh Pirates, not the leagues yet. Because, obviously, spoiler alert, um, no 1904 World Series. Right. Um, okay. Yep. All right. And getting into the stadiums. Does anyone know... I always thought Fenway was the first place, which was, I guess that's kind of dumb, but did you guys know that uh, Boston played somewhere else before Fenway? I actually did not. I did know that. I assumed, but I didn't know. I thought Fenway opened up in the 1912 Fenway. 12, 1912. So obviously they played somewhere before then. Which, uh, again, I didn't know either until I was doing this, but it's called Boston Hunting Avenue American League Baseball Grounds. First stadium for Boston. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's awful. Mouthful. Um, and back then, built in 19... Let me check. 1903. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> uh, built in 1903. Yeah. It was built for 35K back then. How much is that today? Probably a little over a mil. Uh, Mike yeah. is spot on. 1.14 mil. Not bad. Oh, I said your name. Wow. Look at this guy. That was a low guess. I honestly thought it would be higher. Right, and it's located on what is now, uh, you guys know the College Northeastern? Yep. Bakley? <laughs> yeah. They have a, a monument there, like where home plate stood and stuff. Um, and it's actually oh, that's nice. it's a few blocks away from where Fenway is built and, and where the Boston Braves ended up playing. Um, capacity, start at 9K, got up to 14K towards the end, so not too bad for a 1910s baseball stadium. Wow, so you're looking at less than you know a basketball or hockey stadium right now. 
Uh, yeah. Yang Tae sees what forty five fifty thousand, and then all of a sudden, like fourteen thousand. I guess. Wow. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm also Some seeing this before you before I don't mean to cut you off. I don't know if You're you good. had this plan, but I as I was doing the research, so this stadium is actually the f- first perfect game sighting. Yes. Cy Young actually threw it in 1904. How crazy! So kind of fitting as we get into Cy Young later that he threw that first perfect game in the stadium. Nuts. Um. All right. Fun facts. Uh, the stadium was built on a circus lot right near the railroad lines. So tracks were just everywhere, all over the land. Um, that doesn't mean they were in play, but they were all over like the stadium grounds. Um, and it was also near a like chemical plant, so you could just smell chemicals all day while you're playing baseball. <laughs> I imagine going, yeah, imagine going to a game and smelling chemicals all the time over there. I'm sure that didn't contribute to any diseases whatsoever. Mommy, mommy, I want a hot dog. That's not a hot dog, boys. Jimmy. Time to play guess the dimensions. <laughs> I oh, want boy. you to guess how big talking about this how big the center field was. So I know that usually they were built further than today, hence the Dead Bull era. I'm gonna guess we're talking dead center. Yes. Five seventy five. Josh. Oh, I was I was not going that high. I was gonna guess like four ninety. The correct answer was the original center field was 5.30. And wow. guess what? They expanded it to 6.35. And that explains why there's Ex- no home runs. Man, well, that explains why the only home runs didn't go yep. over the um, And, of course, and, you know, dead straight to left field was a, a nice 3.50. So we got some wow. dynamic dimensions here, boys. And guess the right field side. It's on the short side. Oh, yeah, on the short side, it's probably uh, 330. Mike. 470. 280. What? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wait, how? It was the left-handed header. 280 to right field, boys. Wow. Madhouse. Yeah, that's... See, I like that better. Give me 280. Yeah, I don't I don't understand who. I mean, I know there's no uniformity yet, and we, we're going to talk about the domes and, you know, what's to come, but, like, this just makes no sense to me at all. Sounds like polo grounds. I know. Uh, all right, more fun facts. There is a tool shed in play in dead center field. So, um, <laughs> a tool yeah. shed? A tool shed was just in the smack dab middle of center field. Can you believe that? How many guys were at I want to know. <laughs> Going after a I want to know so bad. Uh, I was telling my dad that. He was like, well, you know, uh, Monument Park was in play at Old Yankee Stadium. I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right, but. Ridiculous. I mean, it wasn't a no, tool shed. It wasn't a tool shed. <laughs> a little much. Yeah. So, as we talked about before, going into this, I thought, oh, Dimension's huge. Must be a pitcher's park. Wrong. Hunting Avenue grounds was average or above average in every single offensive category except for doubles. So, it really? obviously turned doubles into triples, home runs, uh, well, triples into inside the park home runs. So I just want to give you a nice stat here. From 1901 to 1904, 97% of the park's home runs were inside the park. Makes sense. Only four left of the, left the fence. But like, and you want to guess? Wow. They went to right field. Yeah. I guess, they, I guess there weren't a lot of righty hitters. I just know it. That's interesting to think about, it's actually. Weird, I didn't think about like, that. You said right field was 280? Yeah. And then left would be hitting in there in theory. So what's going on with that? Like I feel like it'd be more righty hitters than anything because back then that was like the traditional. But man, that's not. a good point. Also, another fun fact: the bleachers in left field had a fence facing in front of them, which caused more balls balls to bounce for extra base hits or inside the park homers anyway because they're bouncing off the fence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And moving on to where the Pirates played. This one was a little hard. It's called Exposition Park, Pittsburgh. Um, this name was actually given to three different ballparks in Pittsburgh that were hosted baseball and football. Located at Allegheny, north side of the Allegheny River. I'm not a Pittsburgh like geography guy, but I, I know it's in the same spot where 
PNC Park eventually becomes to be. So that's all that really matters, I guess. Capacity 16K, which was pretty good. Dimensions a lot more standard. But actually, you know, it's funny. There's so many variations of this park and stuff that people don't have them. They vary depending on which publication you go to. Like uh, center field varies between 380 and like uh, 400 depending on like what site you're on. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but then one site also listed as left field 400, center 450, and right 400, which sounds too uniform for the time, but I'm not sure. What do you guys think? I mean, I guess it makes sense with the inaccuracies in measurement because like we hear that all the time where like, especially with the Negro League guys pre-integration of like, we don't know what their formal age was when like Satchel Page first came to the majors. Oh, yeah. So I, I guess maybe measurements and statistics weren't kept as well as they were today, which makes sense considering they didn't have as many resources to keep them. But I, you said they were named Alleg the Allegheny Stadium? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense because Pittsburgh Pirates were originally the Pittsburgh Alleghenies. Yes, yes. That fits there. I guess yeah. they just never changed the name of the stadium before they changed the name of the team. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, so the park that hosted the World Series was the third iteration of the park. Uh, we talked about this a little off-camera or offline, but the first park suffered a fire and a flood, and a new one was constructed. So um, they moved the second park closer to the river despite the flood because logic... That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, great. Yeah, why, why would you want to get closer to water that's yeah. in the Just wait till we get to the 40s and 50s and we start talking about Mickey Mantle and the drain cover. I'm going to go for hours. <laughs> that second stadium made it half a season when, guess what? There was another Crazy, flood. right, Josh? Shocking. Yeah, I know. Who would have thought, man? That rains. Oh. Raining in Pittsburgh? Wow. It never no. happens. Oof. It's like those people that build beach houses in like hurricane areas and then wonder why their houses get flooded. Exactly. So uh, there's some fun facts about Exposition Parks 1 and 2. They had to make rules for the water. So <laughs> if the water was shin high in the outfield, any ball hit in the outfield was ruled a ground rule single. Ground rule so, single? Wait, hold, hold. Yes. I'm sorry. They played when it was flooded? <laughs> yes, they didn't, Josh. That's the different takeaways that we have. <laughs> Yeah, well, the first thing I think is, you know, we're just going to go play out here. We're going to be trudging through shin-high water. <laughs> Again, a ground rule single, which, I mean, I guess makes sense. But also, if you're if you're the batter and you hit, like, a deep fly ball, you got to be pissed it's not a ground rule double, right? Yeah, man, you know what? It's high, it's far, it's deep. Oh, it's a 500-foot single because <laughs> it landed in the water. John Sterling-esque right there. Absolutely. Another fun fact. So during a 1902 doubleheader against the Brooklyn Sub Superman, Superpats? I don't know how to pronounce that. An Allegheny, an Allegheny flood caused the water to rise thigh high level in center and right field and about head level in deep center. Players in center field and who played the outfield when they would catch a, occasionally caught balls and dove under the water to swim. Dove under the water to swim. That's the craziest I mean, thing. I they were treading heard. water, and they'd pop up and catch a fly ball and go back under. <laughs> that that's the craziest. This thing is I've heard. actual baseball. That's fantastic. Dude, we don't even play baseball now when the grass is a little too wet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it rained at ten o'clock this morning. The grass is a little a little wet. I can't play today. Yeah, I cannot believe this actually happened. Like. It's such a Wild West back then. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, this will definitely be touching on later on. It, we'll definitely connect this back when we start talking about the debates later. Guys didn't get hurt the way they do now. Yeah, no. That's, yeah, that's a whole other topic. But Yeah, so that's the stadiums, and let's hand it off to Josh for some game breakdowns. Yeah, man. So, I mean, now that we've you know covered the stadiums, uh, talk a little bit about the you know the two teams. Um. You know, you can start with the Pirates, uh, your National League uh, winners. You know, they went 91 and 49 uh, that season. They led the league by six and a half games. Uh, their number, their star shortstop, Hannes Wagner, won the batting title. He hit 355. Wow. And uh, Ginger Beaumont led the league with 205 hits. So they were a powerhouse team, especially when it came to hitting. They were known to be extremely uh, deadly in the batter's box. And the Boston Americans went 91 and 47, winning the American League by 14 and a half games. Wow. Buck Friedman led the league with 13 home runs. Imagine that 13 <laughs> home runs. Early baseball dominance for you, but right? Just there. A, yeah. yeah. 
He had 104 RBI. Oh, there so you like, go. No, he wasn't driving in runs. Uh, and that also led the league. Um, and, you know, the funny part about this is, is that, you know, the season ends in, you know, September, October, and, and these two teams decided that they were going to play each other in, in August. So they had a they had to keep playing at the top of their league from August on to make it actually that they actually you know won and go to. Oh, play. I didn't know that the agreement was that, made that, in that's August. That's pretty funny. Oh. Yeah, the agreement was made in August. So they both had sizable leads, but they you know it wasn't decided yet. They could have you know fallen off the cliff. But you know, I guess at that point they kind of knew. Sorry, as I said, especially Boston, they're up what fourteen games. Yeah. Yeah, they led by a lot. And, you know, coming into the series, and the Pirates were, you know, they were kind of riddled with, riddled with injury. You know, this might have been their third straight win, but, you know, Wagner had a right leg injury, and he was he was limping all around the entire the entire series. And he was also known to have been playing with an injured thumb all season, which is pretty spectacular, and he still won the batting title. Uh, their top utility man, Otto Kruger, got hit by a pitch, and he didn't even play at all the whole series. And two of their top three pitchers were uh, not doing very well. Um <laughs> This is going to sound crazy, but one of their pitchers, Ed Doheny, was hospitalized after exhibiting signs of paranoia. <laughs> and uh, about a month later, after the series was over, he was committed to an insane asylum. Can you believe that? No. Yes, I mean, wow. And uh, one of their other top pitchers, Sam Weaver, had a bad shoulder from a trap shooting contest. That was my favorite. Sounds you know, what uh, shooting contest? Reminiscent <laughs> to a trap shooting contest. Ah. That sounds reminiscent to uh, Trevor Bauer and his uh, cutting his finger, but his playing with his drones. <laughs> well, as you do in the you know nineteen early nineteen hundreds, let's go trap shooting. Yeah, sounds like Mordecai Three Finger Brown. <laughs> yeah, so Boston was known coming into the series to have a really good pitching, and the Pirates known to have really good hitting. But everybody kind of knew that the Pirates were coming in a little shorthand with their with their injury troubles. But people still expected it to be, a, you know, a pretty good series. So game one ended up being played on Thursday, October first, nineteen oh three. It's your first October baseball, and game one was in Boston. And this game featured a matchup of uh, the Pirates' ace, Deacon Philippe, who in that season went twenty-five and nine through two hundred eighty-nine innings, struck out, uh, had four shutout complete game shutouts, had. An ERA of 2.43 and a whip of 1.03 at 200, 123 strikeouts. And he had 33 starts, 31 of those games he finished and had two saves as well. So he had, so I mean, that's 31 complete yeah, games. Yeah, that is actually nuts. And 33 starts. How many complete games do we see out of a top picture? Two. Now? Two? Yeah. yeah. What did Otani do this year? Two? Crazy. I don't know. Tony's not a top fish. <laughs> That's the debate for another day. Right, right, right and there. he goes up against, yeah, he goes up against, you know, our future Hall of Famer, Cy Young, who led the league with 28 wins, going 28 and 9, had seven complete game shutouts, also leading the league, while throwing 341 innings. Jesus. Uh, he had a 2.08 ERA, 0.969 whip, had 176 strikeouts. And through 34 complete games and 35 Jesus starts. Jesus Christ. And also getting two saves. Oh, but Josh, what's his FIP? Tell me, what's his FIP? I need to know. Yeah. Oh, Warp Galagook. I'm not looking that far up. So, game one, everybody knew it was great. People packed into the stadiums, excited to watch the game. And, like, no one thought it was going to happen. The Pirates ended up tagging Cy Young for four two-out runs in the wow. first inning. Getting themselves up quickly, four to nothing. And then later in the seventh inning, the Pirates outfielder Jimmy Sebring. It's the first World Series home run. You guessed it. And inside the park <laughs> home run. And the Pirates really jumped out to control. They never they never really let it go away. And they won the first game seven to three. Uh both Philippe and Young, they both threw complete games, as you would expect. We've given up six hits, three runs, two of them earned, striking out ten. Young given up twelve hits, seven runs, only three earned. Three walks and five strikes. Of young. I mean, you got to look at that. Complete man. games? Like, I just can't believe that. It's nuts. And to leave him yeah. in there when you're down that much, too. Crazy. Uh, to me, the number jumps off is seven runs, three of the I round. know. Crazy errors. 
So, a day later, still in Boston with Pittsburgh up, one to nothing. Sam Lever, who was known to be going through some shoulder troubles, he takes the mound, and he had a really good season, going 25 and seven, seven complete game shutouts, 284 innings, leading the league with a 2.06 ERA, a 1.11 WHIP. He had 90 strikeouts. He had 30 complete games, 34 starts, and also added one save. Going up against the Boston uh, Americans, Bill Benin, who was 21-13, six complete game shutouts, 299 innings, 2.26 ERA, a 1.07 whip, 148 strikeouts, and 32 complete games and 34 starts, also adding two saves. So Deneen ended up throwing a neat three-hitter, all singles, never got into trouble, struck out 11 batters, Definitely an absolute masterpiece on the mound. And the Americans tagged Lever for two runs in the first inning. And he only lasted that one inning. Did not finish wow. the game. Bucky Vale ended up coming in to finish the game. I'm not sure if it was an injury or what. You know, if that was it was the injury or they decided that he didn't have it that day. And, you know, Vale ends up finishing the game. He only ended up giving up one more run. So he, he, he threw really well. And, you know, that's pretty rare because you don't really see these reliever guys even go into the games at all. So it was good for him coming off the bench. And in this game, uh, Patsy Darty hit a home run in the first and sixth inning. He had two home runs. And that was two of the three runs in the game. He led off the game with an inside-the-park home <laughs> run. The first time a leadoff batter did that until Asides Escobar, the Kansas City Royals, did this in 2015. Oh, wow. Against the 112 New years. York Mets, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure he is the Mets. <laughs> Pathetic. And uh, Darty also hit the first home run that actually went over the oh, there you go. So Boston won that game three to nothing. Tied the series one to one. Danine again threw an absolute masterpiece. Three singles. Those only gave up two, uh, 11 strikeouts. And a complete game shutout for him. So game three. The next day. That's pretty rare, especially in today's game. Play three three games in a row in the play three days in a row in the playoffs. Usually a rest day or something of. in there, but absolutely unheard of. So series tied one to one. Decon Phillip takes the mound again on one day's <laughs> oh rest. Oh my god! After winning game one, as Boston throws a new pitcher, Tom Hughes, and he had a really good season as well. Not quite as good as Nina Young, but still respectable. He was twenty and seven, with five complete game shutouts, two hundred forty four innings, a two point five seven ERA. 1.19 whip, 112 strikeouts, and 25 complete did, games. Did you just say 20 starts. and 7 was respectable? <laughs> I mean, they have the best team in the league. <laughs> That's absurd, man. It's we love the run support. Yeah, the the pitching stats are just nuts. Yup. Yeah. And I'll get into that. In I a mean, 2.57 ERA is nothing to sneeze at, but it certainly it wasn't you know Didians or, or Youngs. So on uh, one day's rest, Philippe. Comes back out to the mound and throws a two-run complete game, giving up just four hits to Boston. How many? How many pitches? That's pretty incredible. Is he throwing? This guy. I mean, this is not today's game where guys are throwing a hundred pitches. These guys are finishing nine innings of baseball and sixty pitches. With dead ball error, less guys are getting on base. Yeah. Uh, and Hughes ended up less than he only lasted two innings. Uh, he ended up throwing three batters in the third before Cy Young comes in to replace in relief. him. In relief. Also, on one day's oh rest. Oh, my God. And he throws seven innings, giving up just one run. Wild, man. Uh, in this game, there were 11 hits. And would you know, seven of them were ground rule doubles. Wow. So Pittsburgh ends up winning this game 4-2 and take a 2-1 series lead. Complete with his complete game, shut, uh, his complete game, giving up two runs on four hits, six strikeouts. Hughes only lasting two innings, giving up three runs, two of them earned on four hits. And Young finished the game throwing seven innings, giving up just one run on three hits. Absolutely insane. So, there was a travel day on Sunday, and then there was a rainout on Monday. So, game four takes place Tuesday, October 6th. Now they're in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh up 2-1. to one. Bill Deneen takes the down for it. Boston. Calling off a three-hit shutout in game two. Well, I mean, he's got a couple of days rest this time. They have oh, two yeah, days off. yeah. And, uh, I mean, if you if you want to say stop to that one, uh, Deacon Philippe takes Yo. it out again after throwing in game three. No this is his third start in four games. I, I don't understand it. How are their arms not blown out? It's crazy. Uh, he's going out there on two days rest. And, you know, and lo and behold, 
Uh, Philippe survived a three-run rally to top of the ninth inning after throwing eight oh, scoreless innings, leaving the tying run on second base to get a win. Pittsburgh wins up winning the game five to four. They take a nice commanding three to one lead. Oh, uh, both both Philippe and Denine, they throw complete games. We've given up four runs and you've given up five runs. Surprisingly, all the all the runs in this game were earned. So going on to game five the next day, a Wednesday, October seventh. Pittsburgh on a 3-1 lead. Cy Elders takes the mound Dude. again. His third game, his second start. And Pittsburgh decides, you know what? We've thrown Philippe all these games. He's got so many starts. Let's let's go to a different arm. And they bring out Rickyard Kennedy. And uh, he, had a, he had an okay season. Nothing. What's nothing, okay, Josh? Nothing to sneeze at. Nine and six. Oh. One complete game shot out. 125 innings. 3.45 ERA. 1.49 whip. 39 strikeouts, 10 complete games, 15 Yeah, that starts. is okay, I guess. So he didn't really throw that much. Yeah. His ERA was, you know, definitely higher than the other guys. But you got to remember this team was really not known. They were not known to be a deep pitching team, and this guy is like your fourth starter. Yeah. And he's also 35 years old, and he's towards the end of his career. But he ends up taking So Kennedy ends up taking the mound at home against Boston, you know, trying to take a 4-1 lead because... If we haven't already touched on this already, and I don't think we did, this was a best of nine series. Yeah, tr- insane. I don't know who came yeah, up with this. this. You know, I mean, as you know, there's only there's no playoffs, and you're just having one series. You might as well get your money. I guess worth, so. Right? They can play more games. So, in uh, in game five, Kenny shuts out the Americans for five innings, before two errors by living on his Wagner in the sixth inning leads to a. Six run inning for Boston. No way. Uh, and you can honestly blame three of those uh, three errors on him. Uh, an outfielder had to hold up on a fly ball to avoid running into him. Uh, Wagner also dropped the ball thrown to him when he was covering a base on a bunt. And then he just chucked one into right <laughs> field, throwing to a second base, and nobody was standing there. And that would have been three plays in a row, but there was a walk in the middle. <laughs> so uh, not not a good inning for him. Wow. And Boston just. Gave it to Pittsburgh that game, no mercy whatsoever. They scored 11 runs, uh, although only five of them were earned again. Wagner had a day. Uh, and all those runs came in the last wow, four Wow, so he blew that game, huh? That's surprising. Yeah. he Those errors opened the game up, and there was just no turning back. They Pittsburgh just could not recover. Know, get together. Yeah. So Cy Young gets his first World Series win, going the distance. Took a shutout in the eighth inning before he gave up two runs. Both of them unearned, because why not? <laughs> there were 13 runs in this game. Five of them were earned. Dude. Which is crazy. We need we need better fielders in the in 1900s era baseball, please. I'm begging you. <laughs> better fielders. We need better gloves. Oh, that too. Be yeah, better gloves. <laughs> um, so Boston wins game five, 11-2. Pittsburgh still leads series 3-2. Young, Young ends up throwing a complete game. Giving up two runs, although none of them were earned. Kennedy threw seven innings, taking the loss. Giving up 11 hits, 10 runs, four of them earned. And uh, they actually threw in a reliever. Thompson threw two innings, gave up three hits and one. A run. reliever? Yeah, I know, right? Who would have thought? So, then the next day, on Thursday, October 8th, game six. And who do you think started this game for Boston? Bill Neen on one day's <laughs> rest. Started the series after he lost game four. And... Sam Weaver comes in to start for Pittsburgh after his absolute atrocious start in Game 2. That was in the second start of the series. So, a rematch between Denny and Weaver from the second game. This time, Weaver completed the game. But, Denny bested him. Boston ended up jumping out to a 3-0 lead in the top of the third, thanks to a two-out rally started by, hey, Denny himself, because pitchers actually were not that bad at hitting back then. <laughs> uh, and Boston held control. Going up 6 nothing until a uh, Pirates rally at the bottom of the seventh. Got them back uh, three runs, but that was that was it for the whole game. Uh, they were able to get the go-ahead run to the plate with one out and the bases loaded, but Deneen got a double playground ball to get out of the game. And Boston wins that game. 6-3, to three, tying a series, 3-all. Both pitchers completing the game. Deneen giving up 10 hits, three runs, all of them earned. Lever giving up 10, also 10 hits, six runs, four of them earned. So... Uh, game 7 was supposed to be played on that Friday, but it was postponed due to cold weather, which I think is kind yeah, of Yeah, what does that of, mean? But... So you're playing floods, but not in the cold. 
Okay. Yeah, they played flush without the cold. That, that's a good point. I, you know what? Maybe it was flooded and there was yeah, ice on, on the field. Yeah, I was going to say, what right? classifies as cold weather? Uh, I don't know, man. 10 degrees? But there's got to be something if it's cold Maybe water. Mike's right. The, you know, the water in the outfield in Pittsburgh uh, ices up, so they uh, <laughs> they can't, they can't yeah. play. They don't got skates. Yeah, that, that's absolutely crazy. So, game seven is Cy Young. His fourth game, his third start on two Dude. days rest. And Econ Philippe takes the mound again for his fourth start on three days rest. So, you know, he, he you know he's back. He's feeling a little bit. So, after again, they postponed the game on Friday. They're taking, taking this game on Saturday. Uh, this is definitely a featured matchup everybody was hoping to see. Young versus Philippe. Uh, and Boston ends up tagging Philippe for two runs in the first, thanks to back-to-back triples. And they basically stayed in control this whole game. Uh, they ended up getting the 7-3 seven, seven win. Um, this was the first time Philippe was out-dueled. He was 3-0 going into this game. So, uh, Young ends up throwing a complete game, 10 hits, 3 runs, all of them earned. Philippe throws a complete game as well, 11 hits, 7 runs, 4 of them earned. So, after game 7, they have a travel day. They have a travel day on Saturday. And then, on Monday, they had to cancel the game for rain. So, game 8 ended up playing on Tuesday, October 13th, uh, back in Boston. Where Boston... On their four to one lead, they send Deneen to the mound again for his fourth start. Oh, he's got four days rest, so that's not too bad. And Philippe, again, his fifth start of the series, wow. five starts in eight games. And he's going out there on two days rest. Obviously, Pittsburgh is in, you know, dire straits. They need to win this game, so this is the guy they're going with. And the game was scoreless until the bottom of the fourth inning, when Boston ends up taking the lead on a Hob Ferris two run single. And Boston would go on to add one more in the sixth. And would you know, Ferris got another single that knocked that one in. And that was all Boston ended up needing. As Deneen throws a four-hit shutout and struck out on his Wagner to end the game and secure the first 20th Century World Series World Championship to Boston. And Wagner made the last out? No, Wagner makes the last out. And Bill probably Deneen, probably he would have back had a World Series MVP case if that still existed. At the time, three and one, two point oh six ERA. Dude, I can't believe how bad Wagner was. Can we talk about that? Like what? Yeah, I'll, I'll, don't worry. I will be getting <laughs> into that. Uh, so Boston wins that game, three nothing, and they win the World Series, uh, five to three in games. Um, Boston and Philippe throwing complete games. Then Ian giving up no runs, four hits, and Philippe gave up three runs, two of them earned on eight hits. Uh, I mean, overall the series. Uh, Boston's hitting was led by their left fielder and leadoff hitter, Patrick Darty, who hit two home runs, and second baseman Hob Ferris, who drove it, who drove in five runs, including three runs in that game eight. Basically won them the game. Boston's offense was definitely a group effort, where four other players had four RBIs in the series. You know, they weren't really a powerhouse hitting team like, like Pittsburgh was known to be. So they definitely, you know, they won by committee for sure. Uh, Pittsburgh hitting was led by third baseman Tommy Leach, who drove in a series leading seven runs. And right fielder Jimmy Sebring, who drove in four, also hitting a home run, and he led a series with a 333 batting average. And those are my middle performers. I know uh, Mac here has some more to tell us you tell you about. All right. So uh, when we're talking about the Hall of Fame, it's probably the most current event other than free agency and hot stove that will be tying in for a bit. Like obviously we have the historical lens, and now we can kind of try to tie it in with who was rendered relevant by the writers at the time. So we have two from Boston and two from Pittsburgh. Obviously, two of them are bigger names, Cy Young for Boston, Hannes Wagner for Pittsburgh. Um, We also had Jimmy Collins for Boston, who is actually a player manager for the team at the time, and Fred Clark. Now, all four of these guys got in through very different means. Obviously, Hannes Wagner was part of the inaugural class of 1936, with Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson. The one thing was is that Cy Young was a very notable omission. And the reason for that was because the writers weren't sure what they were supposed to do. They were basically told to vote carte blanche whoever they thought belonged, but they weren't sure if it tied in with pre-modern era, 1900, or post-modern era. And Cy Young played from 1890 to 1911. So it tied in right in between um, the two eras. And he still got a pretty good amount of the vote. Uh, he still received, actually, uh, 49.1%. So 50% of people still voted for him in spite of the fact that they weren't sure if he was even eligible. 
which shows kind of how the rules were very vague at the time. The other two, Jimmy Collins and Fred Clark, one from each team, were part of a very odd class, and that was the class of 1945. So this was an old-timers committee, and it became controversial later on. And initially, it was very well-received because the BBWAA, as usual, elected nobody. So seven people, it's which included classic. Connie Mack, who was a manager for the Giants for years, and Ed Barrow, who was the president of the Yankees uh, for a long time. He's actually in Monument Park now. But seven people, including them, were asked to elect 10 candidates whose careers mainly spanned from 1876 to 1900. Purpose of this was more to clear the backlog for the BBWAA because they had all of these people and, you know, only so many votes to go around. So 10 people got in. They followed their um, request. But on the original ballot, I just want to point out, 56 future Hall of Famers received votes on that ballot. So clearly a very crowded group. Out of the 10 that got elected through this new committee, both Clark and Jimmy Collins were actually unanimous selections. So people really did think they belonged in. And some of the other names that got in, Ed Dillahanty, Roger Bresnahan, and Jim O'Rourke. But the bigger story here are the names that are kept out. Kid Nichols, who won 362 games, was not part of this 10-person class because he was a pitcher. And then there was a there was also some movements to elect some unorthodox guys like Abner Doubleday, which there's some controversy as to whether or not he invented baseball. So there was a movement to elect him. Didn't actually happen. He's still not in today. And there was actually a movement, which I didn't know, to have recently deceased President Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a member of the Hall of Fame. I think I no. heard about Are we that. Kidding? And the rationale yeah, why? was basically that he tried to keep baseball going despite all of the turmoil going on uh, in the war. So this is right after he passed. Obviously, a lot of nationalism comes out, and there was a movement to elect him. He didn't get in, obviously, as we know now. And then another name was Deacon White, who was not elected despite being a 312 hitter. He actually got elected in 2013, ironically, because as we were talking about overcrowding of the ballot and no one getting in, in 2013 – no one got in through the BBWAA ballot because we had Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, Kurt Schilling, Mike Piazza, Craig Biggio, and other people, some accused of steroids, some not, but it overcrowded the ballot. No one got in. And Deacon White actually was the beneficiary, you know, almost 70 years later, actually over 70 years later, along with Deacon White went in Hank O'Day, who was a umpire for the 1903 World Series as well. And another umpire was elected as well, Tom Connolly from 1953. But going mainly into the players, we have Hannes Wagner, who, as we mentioned before, did not have a good World Series. Had a two-error game. No. Hit two twenty two. had a five eighty two OPS on the series. Three RBIs, obviously no home runs, but that, was, that went with the territory of 1903. And then Fred Clark and Jimmy Collins had better numbers, but nothing spectacular, 265 and 250. Cy Young, as we said before, 2-1, and 1.85 ERA, 17 strikeouts in 34 innings. The strikeout number sounds a little low, but that's because he wasn't as much of a strikeout pitcher as he may have sounded because the era, which is crazy about what Josh said about Bill Deneen, that you know Cy Young holds the all-time records in wins, losses, and games started still today, but he did not reach 3,000 strikeouts on his career despite leading the league in strikeouts twice. Because strikeouts were a very low number in this era. That's what I conclude from there. Um, That's why these guys can throw these games because they're throwing you know two three pitches to batters. Every, every that's where it ends up going. No, I never thought about that before. I wish that we had before. like a pitch count that would be able to make it more sensical. I don't think but, they even took those numbers back then. But the hard part of this exercise is that it's going to be you know, especially as we progress, is putting these numbers into perspective relative to the era. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about the era and a lot about the stadiums and how they're a lot different now. And it obviously causes the numbers to be a lot different. And that's actually one of the few places where sabermetrics is actually very helpful for that. But for... Oh, boy. Anyway, other notable World Series performances. We have Chick Stoll, who is an outfielder for the Americans. He hit 303 with an OPS of 839. In order to kind of try to make it a little... You know, balance with the era, I put the careers too. So he had 305 on his career with a 785 OPS. So about the same batting average 
and had a better OPS. So he was getting on base more often and, you know, obviously hitting for more power. And considering for the time period, it says a lot. Jimmy Sebring, who was the first player to hit a home run, which we said before, right fielder for the Pirates, he hit 333 on the series with an OPS of 855. And this was actually a lot better than he would typically do because he had a career batting average of 261. So he just got hot at the right time. And Tommy Leach was center fielder and third baseman for the Pirates. Uh, went 273 with an 809 OPS. And the interesting thing with him is that he led the league in home runs the year prior in 1902 with, guess how many? 13. Cut it in half and you're still not there. Six. No. So, yeah, he led the league with six home runs, hit 273 in the World Series. The two things that really came to mind for me with the box scores, and we talked about it pretty much at length, was the dead ball era offenses compared to where the home runs are so emphasized now. And obviously they did not build stadiums for home runs. But the crazy idea of pitchers actually pitching, it's actually incredible. So when we start with this, especially talking with uh, the home runs. I'm sure you guys looked it up, but there were three home runs in total hit in these eight games. So two of them were hit by the same player, Patsy Doherty, left fielder for the Americans. He had 235 the whole series, and his season average was 331. So he wasn't hitting that well, but he when he hit, he hit. Um, and the other home run was Jimmy Sebring, as we talked about before. But talking about pitching, eight total pitchers between the two teams the entire series. There are games now where there are eight pitchers on one team. Eight total pitchers between the two teams were used during the series in eight games. So the only relief pitcher Boston used the whole series was Cy Young for the one game. Cy Young went 2-1, and one, we said before, with a 1.85 ERA. Bill Deneen arguably had a better run, 3-1 and one with a 2.06 and that clutch shutout to ice the series. And then they had Tom Hughes, who had a rough time. 0-1 with the 9 ERA. Tom Hughes pitched one game. So if we take that game out, Young and Deneen pitched seven games. So if you picture that right now, we talk about our role as Chapman and Madison Bumgarner being so overused during these series. But putting it into perspective, Chapman pitched 15.2 innings in 13 games in the entire Cubs 2016 playoff run. And he was never the same after that. Right. And I understand he was a you know a hundred mile an hour pitcher, but like we talked about, like how Joe Madden was, you know, committing managerial malpractice when he threw fifteen point two innings over a month. And Bumgarner, who had probably one of the best playoff runs of our lifetime, three games, twenty one innings, one run, again amazing for the era. Cy Young, three games, an extra thirteen innings, thirty four innings. 13 runs given up, but still a 1.85 ERA. So both dominant, but you just see the difference in innings. Cy Young, in the same amount of games, pitched about a game and a half more in innings than Madison Bumgarner did. I think I, I think when you when you say that he threw innings, I think you know you kind of have to, you know, think about how many pitches physical that he was throwing. Uh, I'm well, sure they, they probably overall threw about the same amount of pitches. Most likely, but you also have to factor in for rest time, too. Also that. That's a good point. Yeah, they did not rest him at all. Not just rest time between days, but rest time between innings. Where, like, you kind of get cold, you know, waiting for, you know, sometimes a half an hour, 20 minutes right. to, you know, get back pitching again. Yeah. But I know we've been talking a lot about Bill Deneen, and I know I told you guys this off camera, but he was an American League umpire after his career and was actually behind the plate for baseball's first All-Star game in 1933. Wow, that's impressive. Very highly regarded tenure as an umpire from 1909 to 1937. And he was actually on a few Hall of Fame ballots himself. Never got above 2.6%. So this was before the oh, 5% wow. rule. But he did get votes considering the crowded ballots. So I'm actually kind of surprised that he didn't get more love considering you know he had this World Series, the, the clutch moment, and had the umpire career behind him. And he was apparently very well respected as an umpire. But... Kind of going back to this one thing, having a Hall of Fame career is another. Yeah, but they a lot of times will tie it in. Like if you were a you know a good player, a good coach, or a good umpire, or even a good announcer, like it kind of gets graded on a curve. They don't officially do that. That's why the writer shouldn't be allowed to vote. But Gil Hodges got in through the Veterans Committee, 
because he hit 370 home runs as a player, which was very high for the time period. And he won the World Series with the Mets as a manager. And then Jim Cott, who you know won 270 games as a pitcher and then had a very long announcing career. So these things may or may not, they can't technically say that they're influenced, but they're influenced. But, but kind of going into the you know topics where I think it comes up as interesting is when we're ranking pitchers from this era, or really anyone prior to Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Mel Ott, should pitchers be graded on a curve when we're ranking them, considering their durability with Cy Young with the innings? And I know we've talked about that a little bit. Or should they be graded with a penalty because there's not a lot of runs being given up in the first place? So we see a lot with Jack Morris, who made the Hall of Fame um, with a really high ERA. He had a 3.9 ERA on his career. But the rationale for a lot of people who voted for him was, well, he pitched a lot more innings than he should have. And a lot of his innings, you know, a lot of his runs were given up in later innings. Does that get held against him? CeCe Sabathia, who should make the Hall of Fame, um, had a 3.74 ERA in his career, which sounds really high. But he played in an era of, you know, performance-enhancing drugs. More power. Does that factor in when yeah. we're rating someone like Cy Young, who had this durability, who, you know, went for years and years and years, racked up all these numbers, and then turned around. But the problem was is that there wasn't a lot of offense to go around to begin with. So how are we ranking these guys relative to, you know, all of Major League Baseball? I mean, to me, you can't I, – I don't think that you can compare – that's the two players at at all whatsoever. I think I think it would be a crime to compare them, and 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 you can't say that oh there should be a curve or oh there should be a deficit. I think you have to compare that player to that time, and if that guy was that much better than you know the people he was playing with and against for the length of his career, that's how he should be put into the Hall of Fame. No, I agree with that, but what I'm I'd saying is agree. like you know while we're not gonna you know there will never be a clear cut ranking list that's foolproof, but like, do we basically what I'm asking is did Cy Young have an overrated career or an underrated career, or is it just right? Cause he had, he led the league in wins. He led the league in losses also. Obviously the strikeout factor, it's different era, but you know, are we grading him on a curve because of how durable he was or are we saying he's a little overrated because of the competition? It's just so tough. I, I don't know if you can grade him on a curve because what do you do with the guys who did pitch in the steroid era? I guess you have to grade them on a curve too, right? Like that's that's tough. Um, but every every era is different. Like the dead ball, it's tough. But like also Josh's point, there's uh, how many pitches is he throwing compared to Mad Bum in a in a playoff game? But I, as far as like legacy and stuff, I think he is where he should be. I think he is going to be remembered as one of the best, regardless of all that stuff, because of the wins record, and that's just not going to be broken. Like, right? Like, guys, do we do we think anyone's oh, no. going to touch that record? No, no not not, not, when no. no, not when you're only starting every five games. If you're lucky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think I think it's tough to rank all these guys. What happened, random, but what happened to that dude like Philippe? I haven't, I never heard of him until today, and he sounds like he was a good pitcher. Did he just fall off the face of the earth after this year? That, that's I honestly a pretty, didn't know a lot about him until we started talking. Are you talking about Deneen? Philippe. No, Philippe, the uh, Pittsburgh oh, I pitcher. See. Yeah, I don't know much about him, to be honest. We can edit that part out. I mean, Philippe, Philippe, uh, his career was 189 and 101, 109. He had a 259 ERA. He had uh, 289 starts. Through 2,600 innings, struck out 929 batters in his career. No. Okay. He played 13 I, I guess he just performed really well. But yeah, I guess we'll kind of tap into number two. You know, is, is baseball kind of losing its way going for, you know, the home run strikeout method all the time? You know, I know the sabermetrics kind of seem to favor that. You know, we're shifting more towards OPS and slugging percentage rather than batting average. But... You know, and I love home runs more than anybody. It's why I enjoy the sport. But essentially, are they worth all the strikeouts? When we look at the numbers, there were 74 total strikeouts over these eight games in 1903. Going back to this World Series, Phillies had 71 alone. 
in six games. So 74 in eight games in 1903, 71 in six games, and 128 total. So we're talking about this era where it's very hard to get offense, but people are hitting the ball. And there's 116 in the sixth game, Braven Astro 2021 World Series. So 116 in six games, we're talking about more than double. And 131, even more, in 2020 with the Dodgers in the race. So our home runs worth it is this new way of baseball going in the right way yeah i'll go first you guys already know my answer no i always i'm always an average guy i'm gonna value getting on base i feel like we don't value that as much i know ops is still like a good like i know it accounts for that to an extent but like guys like to me dj are valuable dj lemayhew guys like i know michael Brantley, big singles guy but like Hitting those singles, getting on base is just starting something because it allows for a mistake. Not that errors happen anymore as much, obviously, but still, you put the ball in play, something happens. When you strike out, it's the worst possible thing for you to do as a hitter because you are not, you're not giving yourself any chances whatsoever. So I'm always going to go for the average guys. I do think the home run strikeout might be better for watching the games and stuff, but as far as like stats goes, I'm always going to favor... I love my average hitter. Well, in fairness, a triple play could be worse, too. Okay, yeah, I guess. (laughs) But I don't know if I'd say baseball's really lost its way, I guess, from, you know, its its original, you know, know, the way it was originally played, you know, way back in, you know, the late 1800s and early 1900s. I think it's just, you know, evolution of, I mean, these World Series games, man, these games were played at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. You know, now 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 you're playing these games at, at eight o'clock at night, prime time on television. Uh, people aren't coming to see. You know, they're not coming to see. Oh, you know, an eleven eleven. You know, this guy said eleven singles. You know, they're coming. They're coming to see a spectacle. They want to see home runs. You know, it, it's all it's all about the money. And I mean, that's where it is. I mean, that's where baseball. I mean, even in the last five years, it's all home runs. Yeah, when you know, the ball's you hit, not you hit, hit more home runs, runs, you get more money. The legal to see hold strike runs. Strikeout, strikeout, Well, then they've also gotten to that. But again, it's also a thing of the, it's analytics. These guys, these guys weren't doing anything. These guys were they were drinking beers and doing crack after the game. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, not wrong. <laughs> I mean, well, listen. When we get to the '86 Mets, those guys oh, were we'll all on crack. Oh, uh, God. But I mean, yeah. Gary Carter was a clean cut boy. Uh, yes, well, okay, not all. Yeah, them, because the he was religious. That's the only reason. He only is because he was a Christian. Like, let's be real. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I don't know if I would go as far as saying they've lost their way as much as I would say it's just the evolution of of advertising and marketing. I mean, yeah, but like early two thousands baseball. It didn't feel too much to me like it was just home run, home run in your face, home run. I felt like there was more like play the game. Like also stolen bases felt more valued when we were kids. I mean, it certainly, yeah, I mean, certainly changed. Now, I feel like no one's 15 years. Yeah, but that went away even like before we really got into baseball. Like talking about Moneyball, the quote from Billy Bean. I paid you to get to first, not get thrown out at second. So stolen bases really started going away. Like we think about these guys with the high numbers. Ricky Henderson, Lou Brock, Vince Coleman. Like they were all before us. No one else is really touching those numbers either. No, no one's going to touch Ricky's numbers, but I don't know. I, I just felt like the game was it was more well-rounded when we were a little bit younger, like early 2000s. At least that's how it felt growing up. Because right now, it's it's either the dude hits 230 and hits bombs, or he hits 280 and can't hit it out of the park unless right. you're judge. So, or the, the top 20 players you're in Adam baseball. You're Michael so. Brantley now. Yeah. Uh, you know, you also got to remember that these games, man, I mean, look at these. They play eight, eight games in this World Series, right? You know how many games got played in under two hours? I don't know. Take a guess. I, I want to guess zero, but I, I'm assuming that's wrong. <laughs> Take a guess. All eight? Seven. Seven out of eight. Okay. And the one Jesus. game that went over? Two hours and two minutes. Yeah. Oh, no way. <laughs> Makes sense. Wow. But, like, no commercials. Oh, no that, breaks. Yeah. No need. Yeah. And, again, these games are played at 
2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. And we're talking about durability. You really think guys like Cy Young needed a lot of warm-up pitches? No. Right. No. <laughs> That's a good point. All right. Anything else, boys? I do have I do have a couple of yeah, times if you'd like to hear them. Sure, go ahead. So I got you, I got you one that uh, I'm surprised we didn't talk about when we were talking about your ballparks. That uh due to overflow crowds and the exposition ballpark in Pittsburgh, they had a rope in the outfield that held spectators back. They could fit in more people. So anytime a ball was hit and roll under that rope, they call it a ground rule triple. Ground <laughs> Not a ground rule single, there were a ground rule triple. 17 ground rule triples in the four games played in Pittsburgh. Well, if you look at the scorebook and go, wow, these guys were fast, these guys were hitting gappers. No, they were hitting him under that rope. A rope. Truly, what a great era to be playing baseball in. You know, you didn't hit a ground rule single when you hit the ball 500 feet and it lands in freaking water. Or <laughs> you hit a ground rule triple and it's probably going like 250 or whatever Crazy. under a rope. And I, got, I, got, I got one more. I got one Nuts. more interesting fact for you. So even though that they had, you know, World Series, the uh, Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Naps played an unofficial best of 11 uh, exhibition after the regular season. Uh, both of these teams were total middle of the pack, you know, fourth, fifth place. No one really cared, but, you know, they had a battle of Ohio, because why not? And uh, Cleveland ended up winning that series yeah. uh, six games to three. So they had their own little uh, fancy series. And, you know, the, the Reds and uh, wow. the, the Reds and the Naps, they were uh, in the different leagues. So this wasn't the only interleague game that got played that year. That's so interesting. Too bad that uh, those franchises are poverty now. I mean, Cleveland went to the playoff. And at least. <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah, but they just get whooped by whoever. I they guess. Face. Yeah, let's be real. Oh, they get like whooped. Minnesota. They're they wearing they the same. Whooped. They're so We're looking pretty bleak for the Yankees there. Oh, it's because we're the Yankees. Yeah, and we suck. We, we won, didn't we? Barely. Yeah, the only thing I have to say is I'm looking forward to the 2023 podcast where we discuss the New York Yankees. Yeah, good luck with that, oh, buddy. Please. Yeah, uh, you're, you're, you'll be my end for every episode. The Mets. Yep, it is never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you're more likely to see the Mets win in 2023. All right. I guess that does it. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of. Uh, Masumi Championship or Bust, again, name to be delegated later. But yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you Thank next you, week. Thank you, Zach. Or two weeks. I lied. Sounds two good weeks. to me. Yeah. All right. See you. Peace out. <laughs>